Are you unclear about your exact message and impact in this world? When I first started out my entrepreneurial journey, I wanted to help people, just like you. As I just sound like every other person offering services, I earned nothing for an entire year. But I soon realized that in this noisy market, you need a clear message to stand out and a way to amplify that message. It cost me two years and well over five figures just to uncover my hidden message and start spreading it. Hence, it is now my mission to help you uncover your message, spread it to the world and start living your legacy. Together, we aim to create a one degree shift to five million people by 2030. Join me in my journey as I interview living legends with life-changing messages that have impacted tons of people around the globe. My name is Darius and you are listening to Live Your Legacy. Hey everybody, welcome to Live Your Legacy. The goal of our show is to help you live your own legacy by connecting you to people and concepts that have made a tremendous impact on the lives of others. My name is Darius and today's guest is someone I absolutely love because he's not just some ultra learning guru, but a true implementer. This guy incorporates the latest research about the most effective learning methods out there. And basically he, he builds up stories of other ultra learners like himself and implement it on himself. He's conducted like pretty, two pretty hardcore experiments of learning on himself. One of it was traveling the globe for a year, learning Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, and Korean, if I'm not wrong, in South Korea. He also challenged yes. himself in a MIT four-year undergraduate computer science um, degree, if I'm not wrong, in 12 months without taking any classes. And he successfully passed the final exam for 33 classes and projects without the need for any formal education. So that's pretty freaking awesome. So welcoming our freaking Thank awesome you. ultra learning guest, um, Scott Young. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, okay, great. Um, first question is, how did you actually uncover the message of like this whole thing called ultra learning? Yeah, so as I talk about in the book, my first exposure to this was when I was in university, I got the opportunity to go on exchange for a year and I was living in France and I was really keen to learn French, but I was kind of struggling with it. And I think the reason I was struggling with it is the reason a lot of people struggle with learning a language is that you're interested in learning it, but you actually don't speak it all the time. You're not in total immersion. So I had English classes. Um, I did not speak French before I got there. So I thought the only classes I should enroll in are English speaking classes. And most of the people that I was friends with were other expats or uh, exchange students like myself or French people who spoke English. And so I only spoke French maybe a a fraction of the time I was there and I was struggling with this and I was thinking well this is maybe just how it is you know this is just how it is learning another language and it just takes years and years and it's really hard to get to a point where you can actually have a conversation with someone and it was around this time that I was introduced to the first ultra learner I met in the book of uh, Benny Lewis and he had had this uh, challenge ongoing for uh, already a couple of years when he's doing this but he's done many more since uh, our first encounter where it was to go to a new country and try to become fluent in the language in three months. And so clearly this was a very different approach than I was used to and certainly different from the approach I was working. And so I knew that I had to meet this guy. And so I went and I uh, got a chance to meet him. He happened to be in Paris. I, I was uh, living in the South of France, but I was going there. I had a little bit of a school break and we met each other and I got this impression from him, not just of the methods he was using with learning, not just, you know, things like mnemonics and how he studies and how he practices, but just this intensity, just this 
sheer obsessive intensity and enthusiasm for learning things and figuring out what's the right way to learn things. And this was something that really captivated me because up till that point, the only time I'd been exposed to learning things was in school. It wasn't something that I thought, yeah, you could just do this with your life, just go around to different countries learning languages or just spend it learning really interesting things and skills. And so um, since then, I've done my own projects and I've met many other people that have done this. But that was sort of the first kind of sign for me that, you know, this is something that you could do. And it was something that I think a lot of people are not aware of. I think that the approach that he was taking was certainly unusual and extreme. And so I think that's one of the things that often gets missed is that if you look around you for people who are learning the language, you find some people that maybe took a few years of university classes or, you know, they, they lived in the country for a decade, so they speak it, but you don't see that many people who are attempting things like this. And so I wanted to try to take some of these rare and unusual um, experiences and these people that have had the opportunity to meet and compile them together into one book so that, you know, you would have the chance to meet them too, so to speak. Yeah, I've actually read through your whole book of ultra learning. Now, before I go into parts of the book, there's this one school, I mean, there's two different school of thoughts, right? There's a traditional learning, and then there's like the unconventional learning. I realized that you take a lot of the path of unconventional learning. So then the question is, just now you especially mentioned like how, like uh, for Benny himself, he got pretty hardcore methods, right? Pretty unconventional methods. So then to um, like, because most of our audience are entrepreneurs and things like that, would you say that, you know, it is a good thing to have or is it a must have or like when it comes to going with a traditional way of learning or should we go with the unconventional way of learning? Because some people might not be very comfortable with, you know, going and doing those um, things that are out from the norm. So I'm not against people going to school. And as I talk about in the book, I think there's often some important reasons that people go to school, one of those being getting credentials. If I want to be a doctor, I certainly can't just be at home, you know, cutting up little, you know, plastic figurines, figuring out how to do uh, surgery. That's not what I would want for a doctor. And indeed, that's illegal in almost all countries. And similarly, there's a lot of things where you have to go through some kind of traditional path. But I would make two points about it. The first point is that even if you have to go through a traditional path, you can take more onus and directive in the learning effort. So a lot of people are kind of passive about how they approach learning. They go to the class, they get handed the syllabus, it's like, I guess this is what I got to study. And they try to memorize it to pass the test. And I think the ultra learning ethos is, here's the challenge, what's the best way to go through the challenge? And to really think about that kind of higher level reasoning of not just how do I study this, but what is the right way to study? What is the right approach to remember things? What is the right approach to understand things? What is the right approach to practice things that you don't find easy? So I think that's the first part is that it's really not about traditional versus unconventional, but about effectiveness. The second thing I would add is that our university system and formal education apparatus in general is often very rigid and it doesn't always fit the goals that we have. So in the language learning example, like my goal wasn't to get a degree in speaking French. I wanted to have conversations with people, right? That was what my goal was. And so I think if you look kind of beyond some of the more formal credentialist aspects of the education system, there are many, many goals we have where we want to get good at something. And the question is, how do you do that? And so I think the ultra learning ethos also 
encourage us to broaden our understanding and expectations. So instead of learning a language where, okay, well, I can either play with this app on my phone or I can go take, you know, three years of community college classes, there's third and fourth and fifth and 17th options that you could try that would be different. And so I think this expanding of the space of possible uh, strategies you could use was another motive in my book. I wanted to show people doing things in unconventional ways, not to give you a specific instruction for how to do a particular thing, but just to kind of remind you that there are many, many unusual ways to do things. And some of them, if you think through their logic, might actually be more effective. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the whole like traditional school education system and we're kind of forced. Um, in a way, I mean, we have no choice because we gotta um, meet the test and things like that. But a lot of us don't really question on like, is that actually, is that really the best way of learning? And that's why I'm pretty glad that you're all here. So you mentioned in your ultra book, like your ultra learning book, right? That we tend to forget what we learn. Hence we should space out our learning instead of cramping mm. all of it all at one go. Right, then you talk about how you got to find that sweet spot between that. So how do you actually find, you know, what's the best intervals when it comes to learning? Is there like every maybe one day and after that I try to recall it and then like, you right. got what I mean? <laughs> so so I'll, I'll first explain the research then I'll explain how it works in practice. So the research is essentially that we've known for, well, over a hundred years now that if you spread your exposure to information out in time, you will retain it better than if you pack those exposures into a short period of time. And this is kind of the phenomenon of cramming, that if you cram, yes, you perform better maybe the next day, but you don't perform better a week, two weeks, certainly not a year from now. And so this longevity of memory being associated with having more spread of exposure is important. That's an important variable to work with, especially for more um, memory intensive subjects. So for learning a language, for instance, uh, I remember this uh, experience I had where I was with the language tutor and uh, I think she had taught me a word on, let's say Monday. And then on Thursday it came up and I'd forgotten it. And she was like, well, you were supposed to have like memorized that word. You're not supposed to, you, I already taught you that on Monday. And I think this kind of illustrates the point is that if, this is not my flaw of not being able to remember the word three days later, but the general flaw of people is that if you want to remember the word, no, it's not enough to memorize it Monday. You have to be exposed to it Monday and Thursday and then two weeks from now and then you may require dozens of exposures to successfully imprint it. And so this kind of gives a sense of how do you approach um, learning things in that you need to have these spaced out exposures. Now, how do you actually do that? And I think it will be different for different subjects, but I think one of the main um, keystone strategies that I've used in my projects and that I recommend people use is what I call directness, which is you figure out what is the situation you actually want to apply the skill toward and you do as much practice as possible at that. And the benefit of this kind of organic, natural sort of practice is that it often involves this spacing. So if you're learning a language and you just have conversations with people a lot, it turns out you say a lot of the same words over and over again. And so you get that spacing automatically. So you don't need some you know, careful algorithm, you just practice. Similarly, if you are, let's say, doing programming and you're working on your own programming projects, there will be certain pieces of syntax, certain functions, certain uh, design patterns that you use over and over again, and you will get really, really good at them. And so I think this is kind of how our brains were designed to learn. Something that we repeatedly have to use as a skill, we learn things that only came up that one time. It, we don't store it in our brains because there isn't space and it would be too difficult. So it, you can think of how debilitating it would be 
if you literally remembered every single detail, no matter how important or frequent it came up in your life, like you remembered, you know, exactly what the bank code was and this and this kind of thing, it would be overwhelming. You'd have all these details. It would be hard to sort through what matters and what doesn't. And that's a big part of thinking. So I think this idea that you want to shift towards more direct naturalistic practice is very valuable. And I think it's a useful countermeasure because so much of the learning we've done in school is so artificial, so removed from the situations that we actually care about. And so I, I am kind of advocating in a certain sense a return to that um, natural way that we learn things. Okay, great. So let's dive in deeper into the book. I, actually, I just want to talk about principle one and principle eight for those people who are listening. Sure. Our child learning book is packed with a crap ton that you can actually apply. <laughs> so you can, can look more into it. But principle one is actually very, very interesting because you talk about meta learning. Right? And I feel that you know, people like when if people were to read it, they'll be like, oh yeah, okay, I, I know meta learning. It, it sounds like when you're going to explain it later, people are going to be like, oh yeah, I know that. Right? But I feel that people kind of know the importance, yet they kind of overlook this step. I'm not sure if you agree. Like when I look at yeah. it, I'm like, yeah, maybe you want to explain. And yeah. Sure. So meta learning, uh, and if you're not familiar with this kind of English construction of meta, whatever, it's usually when something is about itself. So meta learning is learning how to learn or learning about learning. And so in the particular way that I'm using it, let's say you're learning a language, you have all the language specific content that you have to learn. So you have to learn the words and uh, the grammar and pronunciation and stuff. But there is a, a layer on top of that that you wanna learn, which is what is the right way to learn languages? So the person who has good meta learning for languages can often learn languages more quickly because they know the right way to acquire vocabulary. They know the right way to teach themselves unfamiliar pronunciation. They know how they should be practicing things. They know how they should be acquiring it and learning. And so what I argue in the book is that we spend very little time on this. Part of the reason we spend very little time on this, again, goes back to the traditional education system where we focus on content knowledge and the assumption is that the teacher has the meta learning map in his or her head. And so she doesn't need to tell it to you, right? Like if I know the right way to learn a language, I can just guide you through exercises step by step. I don't need to give you the roadmap because I'm the one driving the car. And I think this creates a, a, a kind of a disability for the student because if they ever have to learn something outside of school, they have no concept of this map. They have no concept of what would I need to do first and last. And so there can often be a lot of trial and error. And indeed, I think there's a lot of mistakes people make because they just have a fundamentally very bad map of how you actually acquire skills in certain domains. And this leads to a lot of frustrations. They think you have to do X when you really have to do Y. And this leads to a lot of pain and misery. And so I think the main way you can overcome this is by doing research. So if you wanna learn uh, a, a completely new subject that you have no experience with, spend some time seeing how other people learn. And this is true of languages, sports, chess, math, art, anything you can think of, you could spend some time being like, what is the practice strategy? What is the way that people who are good at this acquire the skills? And you will automatically avoid tons of pitfalls. Uh, the second thing that I, I point out is that as you get better at this, and really the book itself, Ultra Learning, is a kind of meta-learning book, you start to notice abstract principles and you start to be able to see these principles at work in ways that are not exactly obvious. So the example I used before was about memory. And I think from having done a lot of projects, particularly memory intensive projects, 
I have a different sense of, okay, this would be the difficulty of acquiring this, this knowledge that involves memory. These would be the pitfalls to avoid, and this is what I'd have to do, sort of independent of what the actual project looks like. And so I think that the kind of long-term goal for meta-learning, what you're really aiming at, and what I try to kind of encourage people to think about if they wanted to become an ultra learner, is to acquire this sort of deep representation in your head of how learning works across many domains. So you could come to a new subject and you could just sort of be like, okay, well this and this and this are gonna be the hard parts. I'd have to do this and this and this, and I could just go forward with it. And I think when you have that skill, it's truly powerful because then you really have the skill of acquiring other skills. You have the, you know, the, the, the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak. Would you say is like quite a lot of self-awareness and knowing like what exactly you learn better at and what exactly you pick up faster at when it comes to meta-learning? Yeah, self-awareness is super important and it's very difficult to cultivate because I can talk about these things and they sound obvious when you think about them, but you don't always spot yourself in that situation. So, the, you know, uh, we're talking about language learning a lot here. I can, I can shift to some other topics if you think your audience would like them more. But, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I often rag on a little bit for language learning is that Duolingo is a super popular software. But it's the kind of thing that if you understood a little bit how memory works, a little bit how cognition works, and a little bit how languages work, you'd see why it's not super effective. And one of the main reasons it's super not super effective is that it gives you these kind of like word banks that you're, you're tapping on your phone to make up a sentence. Well, if you think about what you actually have to do with your head in order to speak in a real conversation situation, they're not that similar. <laughs> like you don't have a word bank in front of you. You're not trying to form this exact sentence. You're trying to recall it from memory rather than just seeing it on your phone. And so I think that the, the problem is that when you're engaged with an activity, you, you know, when I explain this, it makes sense of like, oh yeah, that's why that wouldn't work very well. But you could easily spend six months doing Duolingo and not see that, not see that that's going to be the problem. I'm guilty of this. <laughs> and so this kind of, this kind of reflective step is, is a big problem is that a, a lot of people uh, won't make that automatically and they could spend a lot of time using inefficient strategies. So I don't know any sort of surefire way to kind of trigger that awareness. But I think if you spend more time with the subject, you spend more time uh, researching it, you're less likely to fall into these traps. And I admit that I've fallen into these traps too. So this isn't just about being, me being super smart or anything. There's lots of subjects. And when I started learning them, I just had a fundamentally wrong picture in my head of how the subject works. Now that I've spent more time with it, I'm like, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You have to do this. And so I think uh, that's what you want to take advantage of when you're learning is that some people have that map and you want to get them to draw it for you. Um, so that you can avoid kind of some of these pitfalls. Yeah, I think it's very similar to what Tony Robbins always say or Jim Rohn say, you know, success leaves clues, right? You just got to mm -hmm. go and follow after the people who have already done it before. So I, I think maybe we change the example because I think a lot of our audience would really love to see it being applied on a practical scale. I mean, yeah, sure, language. Maybe some people would like <laughs> to know more about language. So let's say, right, um, I think most entrepreneurs will always like to be, you know, become like a better speaker. Right. Or let's say, what if someone aims to be like, you know, a, like maybe a world-class speaker, right? And he aims for it like in a ridiculous, like short span, short time span. Right? Since you have always been challenging yourself into making things into an extremely short time span, right? So what do you think is like, will be your game plan with that? Well, it's funny because in the book, uh, one of the people that I had the chance to not only meet uh, after his project was done, but I knew him before the project started. So I got to see it unfold from start to finish. And this was a friend of mine, Tristan de Montebello, and he had a project 
to get good at public speaking. And it just so happened that before he, he didn't realize this was important when he started the project, but he was about six and a half months before the world championship of public speaking when he started his project. And so if you can see where I'm going here, he did um, a lot of competitions through Toastmasters and he was able to move up uh, very rapidly to the point where he was a finalist in the top 10 for the world championship of public speaking. And this is something that I think has like 32,000 participants. So we're not talking about, you know, this isn't like winning a, you know, a grade school science fair or something. This is a very serious competition and one that typically requires decades to, to master. And so what was very interesting for me was his, he again, took this ultra learning ethos very seriously. So he was speaking very frequently, sometimes even twice a day. So right there, obviously, if you're putting in that much practice, you're going to go much faster than someone else. And that sounds obvious, obviously putting in more time counts. But I think what I, the reason I emphasize that is that it's not so much having the time. Lots of us would have the time to do this. Uh, my, my friend, he even had a, a new child in the middle of this process. So it's not as if he had, you know, uh, just this perfect, okay, I have zero responsibilities. I'm independently wealthy. I, I can do all this kind of thing. Rather, the problem is that speaking, you know, once a day or twice a day is terrifying. <laughs> and that's the reason people don't do it. People don't do a lot of the things I'm talking about because of this, oh, wow, that's going to be really hard. That's going to be painful. That's going to be strenuous. Maybe I can find a phone app that I can play on instead of doing this hard work. And so um, he, he did all that work. But he also did a lot of things like he videotaped all his uh, uh, speeches so he could watch them. And then that allows you to get some different kinds of feedback. Because if you are watching yourself, you're not actually having to perform at the same time. So you can notice mistakes in your speaking. Notice, oh, I'm a little bit disfluent here. Or, oh, that wasn't very good. I got to get better at doing this. Whereas you may not notice that when you're speaking because you're too focused on the actual performance. And so he did lots of things like this. And I think that this idea of ultra learning really applies broadly. So it can apply to lots of different skills. Okay, then let's move on onto this principle. It's still using the same example of public speaking. And this is something that's also another interesting thing when you talk about intuition, right? You mentioned about like going deep and honestly, that was very intriguing because I think intuition, like as you put it, right? Like intuition, people will be like, oh yeah, it's a gut feeling or this kind of thing is. So maybe you want to explain more on like uh, that particular point using the example of like speaking on stage, right? Because I think intuition and going in deep is not as simple as what, what is written. Right. So the, the example I use in the book uh, is uh, my kind of all-time hero for learning, Richard Feynman. And the reason I use this example is that he was a real intuitive physicist. So when he was thinking through problems, he would kind of just come up with the answer seemingly from nowhere. Like, oh, no, it's this, right? And so people from the outside are looking at that and they're like, how the heck is he doing this? Including other mathematicians. And no doubt Richard Feynman was very bright. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna make that claim that just anyone could be Richard Feynman if they just worked hard enough. But again, I think it's worth mentioning that he was even considered kind of magical even by other physicists who are also very bright. And so I think the, the sort of research from cognitive science that builds into this here is this idea of chunking. And the idea of chunking is that the sort of way that we get understanding, and especially this kind of intuitive understanding, is that we take little building blocks of ideas and through exposure, through practice, they get linked together so we can manipulate them as one unit. So the kind of visual metaphor here is imagine 
that all the little pieces of understanding math, for instance, are little Lego blocks, right? And so you are snapping them together by working through ideas. And as you have bigger chunks, you can just pick them up. So maybe you can only handle like three or four Lego blocks in your hands at a time. But if they're all snapped together, then you can pick them up pretty easily. And I know this is kind of abstract, but I think this truly applies to all skills. So you were talking about public speaking. And one of the things that is often difficult in a performance domain like this, or, or even a kind of more creative domain, not necessarily as technical like mathematics, is that you often rely on understanding very kind of subtle signals from the audience. So you're sort of like, oh, I need to tell a joke. This is an issue or that's an issue. And I think one of the things that you are doing when you have a lot of exposure is that you are sort of building these more and more complex representations of what's happening and you're making finer and finer discriminations of what's happening on the stage. And so this isn't to say that there's some kind of shortcut process where you can build this intuition up, but rather if you understand it as being a kind of not a miraculous ability, but rather this um, thing that comes through exposure and it essentially is expanding your ability to work with ideas, to work with situations over time by increasing it, then this is something that you can actively seek to improve. This is something you can get through practice. So if you were learning physics, one of the key things is if you play around with the equations a lot, you're at not just trying to solve this sort of limited set of problems, but you're playing around with it. Maybe I could do this. How would you solve this? How would you do that? You're exploring it from a lot of different angles. You're building lots of different chunks. You're building this extensively, this library of mathematical and physics patterns so that when you encounter new problems, you can see that they're only made of a few big chunks and you can manipulate them. And this is true of public speaking, it's true of entrepreneurship, it's true of many other domains as well, where the more you're able to build these kind of abstract representations or these subtle discriminations, the better you're able to perform in the domain. And this is something that comes from experience rather than just being really, really smart. Okay, great. I think that really answers the question. It's a lot more about experience and really understanding it very in depth. So I think this is the biggest question that my audience have is, how do we keep focus on like the numerous tasks that we do on a day-to-day -day basis when we are not distracted by our environment, but because of our wandering thoughts? Right. Yeah. So uh, there's sort of an interesting um, set of research on boredom uh, that I came across. Uh, this was after I wrote the book, so I didn't mention in the book, but it was, it was about boredom. And so uh, already reading journal papers about boredom, it sounds like a thrilling activity, but it actually was very interesting because the authors of this paper were arguing that boredom is often seen as a sort of negative state. So I'm bored, I have my mind wandering, I'm not paying attention, this is unpleasant, I don't wanna do this anymore. And it's certainly linked often with like not doing well on the activity. So if you're bored in class, you're not gonna perform as well if you're interested. However, the way they were saying is that boredom might even be a way of kind of letting yourself know that you're cognitively disengaged. So if your mind is wandering and you're feeling bored, that may also be a symptom of I'm not engaging with what is happening right now. I'm not able to link up to it. So if you can imagine like the lock and the key, I'm sticking the key, but it doesn't fit the lock right now. And so that's what this boredom is, is that what I'm exposed to, the material, what I'm trying to learn does not engage in me. And this isn't to say that you can just turn, you know, math homework into like watching an episode of Game of Thrones or something like this. But it is to say that if you're aware of that, you can often make subtle changes in the approach that you're taking to re-engage yourself. 
So if you are, again, if you're having difficulty with a long reading assignment and you find yourself kind of drifting off or maybe even falling asleep, maybe the problem is that you're not applying the knowledge in some way. So you can maybe break off and take a few notes or try to summarize what you've just learned. And if you are you know, working through a problem and you're finding your mind's wandering this, maybe you're having difficulties because you don't see how what you're learning connects to the things that you care about. So you could break off and sort of like, okay, how does this apply to a problem that I'm actually interested in? And so I think this idea that mind wandering and boredom and these kinds of activities are a result of disengagement and you can treat them as not just something to overcome through brute force, but as a way of adjusting your posture can be quite effective because there's often multiple ways to approach the same idea. And very often boredom results from the fact that whatever's happening, your attention is just not synchronizing up with the activity. Oh, you're great. Thanks for answering that question. I think it's a lot about, I think back to the whole point of, you know, knowing whether you're disengaged and if you're disengaged, then what can you actually do about it, right? Rather than being bored and like, continue being bored and let your mind wander. Mm -hmm. So um, now we'll go on to like the legacy segment, which is I'm going to ask you some questions about legacy. And so first question is, what's your own vision for the impact that you want to have? Well, I think that the work that I do and what I try to do is I want to do something that is kind of unique. And so with this book and, and with the work that I was doing on learning projects, over the last years, this was something that I felt like I didn't know a lot of other people doing it. I mentioned Benny Lewis and I, I, I've met other people doing it, but I think that the specific projects I've undertook taken have often been somewhat unusual or different. And so for me, the, the way I see it is that we live in this big world where there's lots of different people doing lots of different things. And this is sort of my small way to contribute something to that kind of range of experience there. And it's a kind of creative vision, honestly, like you see something in your head that you want to exist in the world that doesn't, whether it's a book or whether it's some kind of project or whether it's, you know, I wonder if this would work. And so that's sort of my small contribution. And so what are you like currently committing to on a daily basis just to meet this um, impact that you want, that you vision out? Well, right now I'm really working on improving my deep work. Uh, I just um, released a new course with Cal Newport, who's the author of deep work. And we're having a three month sort of training program and I'm going through it myself uh, to kind of enhance my abilities. And so one of the things I'm working on this month is trying to increase the amount and quality of uh, focus work time I have, um, particularly for writing. And I think this is sort of the variable that I'm focused on most right now at the moment. Yeah, I can see that you write a lot, <laughs> especially on your blogs because I'm reading. By the way, guys, uh, we don't really go through the, the whole MIT um, experiment over here, but you can go and read his blog and it pretty much explains almost everything. And it's really very interesting. So uh, one of my last three questions, actually the last question is, what does living a legacy mean to you? Well, I think there's some value in seeing your life kind of from the rear view mirror. And I think very often we get involved in the sort of day-to-day -day business of our lives. And we don't really sit back and ask ourselves, is this important to me at the highest level? Is this something that I'm gonna be proud of it being my life's work years from now? And so I think this sort of zoomed in level of dealing with life's challenges and putting out fires and, oh, I've got this urgent task and then you fast forward 10 years and you realize that you can't even remember those things. 
And so I do think that the, the goal for me is not necessarily a legacy in the sense of I'm trying to build up some work that's going to last forever after I'm gone, but rather to focus on a type of activity so that 10 years from now, I am going to be satisfied with that work and feel like I did the best with the time that I had. And we don't have that much time. I think, you know, I don't mean to be morbid about it, but I think we do often forget our own mortality. I think there's a human instinct to avoid such thoughts. And because we avoid such thoughts, we don't really reflect on things like, you know, if you spend five years doing something that's a dead end job that you don't care about, if you spend five years and you didn't learn anything, you didn't do any interesting projects, you didn't do anything that um, was sort of deeply meaningful. And I don't want to say just only accomplishment can be meaningful. Obviously, if you have children or if you went on a really nice vacation or you spent time with your family, that can also be meaningful. But I think so much of what we do is not meaningful in that way. It's not meaningful in some sort of bigger sense. And so I think you do need occasionally to snap out of that and think about, I only have a certain amount of time on this planet and I want to do something that I would think from that rear view mirror perspective is meaningful and something that I think is important. And so that's not an easy question to answer. And sometimes it can be a bit of a terrifying question to answer. But I think if you remind yourself of it occasionally, I think you shift yourself to doing things that are a little bit more worthwhile of the limited time we've been given. I think that's very interesting. Uh, just to touch on the, the last point, because usually like the kind of questions is like, oh, will I regret not doing this? Or will I, will I look back and then like think about, have I, have I done anything significant? But I like how you, you got that question or that specific question, which I'll probably start using, which is more of like, will you be satisfied Right. Will you be satisfied with what you have done uh, in the past five years? And whether is it meaningful and contributing work? Then I was like, oh, wow, that's actually a very specific question that I'll probably start asking myself as well because it really zones down to the point of are you actually satisfied with the work that you do? So yeah, thank, huge thanks for that question. And that's about it for this episode, guys. <laughs> if you want to know more about Scott Young, um, where, can we find, where can we find and learn more about you? So you can go to my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Got links to everything there, the book, my uh, blog, my own podcast, many of the other articles and essays I've written. Uh, int interestingly, if you're, if you're thinking about uh, learning something, you can take uh, Ultra Learning. It's available Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, wherever you get your books from. Uh, it's also on Audible. So if you like listening to books, uh, you can listen to me narrated if you're not already sick of my voice. Yeah, great. So all the links will be down below, including the socials as well. Thanks for being on the podcast, uh, Scott. I think you have gave us quite a lot of insight, a lot more insight into ultra learning. And for those who have listened to the podcast and you like this episode, do make sure to subscribe and leave a review on the podcast. And till the next episode, start living your legacy, guys.